Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fishing for Problems, a Spanning Boundaries podcast. For this episode, I spoke with Dr. Supna Cherian. Supna is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington. Her research investigates how cultural stereotypes cause and perpetuate racial and gender disparities in U.S. society. I found her work as I was doing research on computer science in the K-12 space, specifically what to teach and how to teach it in ways that broaden the CS pipeline. I was excited to speak with Sapna because her work is relevant to my dissertation, but also because I am a father of two daughters and I want them to have every opportunity they can. And understanding the circumstances that contribute to a computer science workforce that is dominated by men is critical not just for my daughter's futures, should they be interested in pursuing a career in CS, but also to their mental health and well-being because it matters who makes the technologies that we spend so much time immersed in. And right now, most of that tech is being made by men. There's a lot of research to suggest that this is not an ideal situation. I hope to explore this more on my podcast. But for now, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Dr. Sumna Charian. So Sumna Charian, welcome to Fishing for Problems. Thanks for having me. So we're recording this on January 8th, a few days after the attempted insurrection on the Capitol building. Uh, I'm just curious, how are you doing? And do you have any thoughts on the events of January 6th? Um, I am, I don't, I feel like I can't even fully describe how I'm doing. I, in some ways, I am completely not surprised by these events. In other ways, I feel like there's still so many questions and, um, so much reckoning that this country has to do with not only with what happened, but with what it, what it means going forward. And, um, and, uh, you know, just, I mean, it just, once again, it just exposed uh, and made very public white supremacy and the um, terrorism that uh, many white people in this country um, just impose on on others and on democracy um, over and over. So yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, uh, I'm okay. Um, but uh, I'm hoping, I think some people have called this a, a turning point. Um, I'm hoping that it will be and that we, we can go to somewhere better from this. Yeah, I hope so too. And uh, it's it's hard to process so soon uh, after such an event. Uh, and I think as we were talking about before uh, starting recording, uh, just sort of feeling like we need to get back to uh, our work without having the opportunity to think through some of these incredibly consequential events that have happened, um, you know, feel challenging, but, you know, I guess that's that's the way it is. Uh, one of the reasons why I also ask, and uh, maybe we can get to this later in the conversation, because it's not unrelated to our conversation today, is the role that social media played in fomenting the insurrection and the way that Facebook, Twitter, and other social media companies approach uh, use policies is no doubt a function of the individuals in charge of these companies who are, for the most part, men. So again, maybe we can circle back on this topic later in the conversation, but I do think it's it's relevant. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so for this conversation, we're going to focus primarily on the intersection of gender and race with computer science or CS and other STEM fields. I wanna start by talking about the statistics a bit, exposing the what. After that, I wanna get into the why. So what your research suggests are the reasons for the demographic disparities in certain science professions. Next, we can talk about why it's a problem, meaning why it's not good that uh, most of these jobs are staffed primarily by men. And finally, what, what to do about it. So the primary focus of your research is on gender and STEM. The statistics show that there are significant demographic disparities in CS and other STEM fields. Before getting into the why, can you share some of those statistics? Yeah, um, so uh, I'm, I'm, I focus mostly on um, the college statistics. So I'll start there and then if you want me to follow up with a little bit more of what I know about high school and, and workplace, I'm happy to do that. But um, if you look at who's majoring in different fields in the US currently, um, what you see is that um, there are some fields that still have very big gender disparities and um, uh, fields in STEM, including computer science, physics and engineering are still very um, heavily male dominated. And they're to the point where they're uh, only less than 20% of their degrees go to women. And um, interestingly, this statistic hasn't really changed very much. It's been pretty stagnant since uh, 
2000 or so, so for the last couple of decades, people seem to think that there's like this progress, um, natural linear progress or something like that, but we aren't seeing that in fields like computer science, engineering, and physics in terms of the number of degrees or the proportion of degrees earned by women. And um, actually in the case of computer science, you see that um, the, the highest point in terms of proportion of degrees earned was actually in the mid 80s. So if you compare us to the mid 1980s, you see that we've actually decreased in the proportion of women getting these degrees. Um, what's interesting about these statistics is that this is not um, this is not the case for other STEM fields. So in biology, women are getting the majority of the degrees, um, about 59%. In chemistry, they're getting nearly 50%. In math, it's around 45%. So um, there's something unique about computer science, physics, and engineering. And that that's one of the questions that really drives my work, trying to understand what it is about these fields that um, why they seem to be uh, having so much trouble um, bringing women in in the same number that they bring men in and, and keeping them there. So the disparities exist. And I guess the next question is why? In, in your 2015 paper titled Cultural Stereotypes as Gatekeepers, you focus on this question and you reference a professor Galertner from Yale who said that women don't want to enter CS. This quote made me think about Lawrence Summers' comment in the early aughts about the absence of intrinsic aptitude in women, which might prevent them from, from pursuing careers in CS. It also makes me think about James Damore in his Google memo. So are Galertner, Summers, and Damore right? Are the disparities in CS and other STEM fields a result of biological factors suggesting a difference between men and women or white men and people of color? Or is there something else going on? And if there is something else going on, what is it? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, it's a question that forms the basis of my work. And, um, you know, after doing work on this for more than two decades and, um, you know, being very familiar with all the literature and the, the research out there and having, you know, doing my own experiments, um, I'm very convinced that it is not some kind of biological um, innate difference between girls and boys and women and men that causes this uh, disparity and that the culture has a lot to do with it. And when I talk about the culture, there's so many aspects of the culture that I'm talking about. It's um, the, the culture of these fields themselves, like what the messages are that um, circulate within these fields about who can be successful in them and who belongs there and who's good at it. Um, it's, the, it's, it's partly American culture, the messages that um, we send um, our students on how to decide what you want to do and um, how we should all follow our passions and do things like that. And those, those kinds of messages can also contribute to these kinds of disparities. And I'm happy to talk about that later if you're interested in, um, you know, the ways in which that even our, our um, the culture of our, of our the ideologies that circulate in our country can contribute to this. Um, and the, the reason that I, I mean, I have a lot of experimental evidence I can put forth, but um, the reason that I um, think it's culture is because you can find places, places in different countries, places within the U.S., like uh, individuals departments, university departments or, or high schools, where it is not the case that women are underrepresented in these fields. And it's, it's not the case that women are doing worse in them. Um, uh, and if, if it was something biological, then it would be, you would have a hard time explaining why in countries like Kuwait, 75% of engineering degrees um, in Kuwait University go to women or why in Malaysia, half of the computer science degrees go to women or why in the 1980s, as I mentioned earlier, more than a third of the degrees were going to women, but now it's 20% have women changed biologically somehow um, to explain that. So I think if you, if you zoom out and you look at uh, historical patterns, patterns in different countries, patterns within the US of places that have been able to change their culture successfully, um, it becomes very clear that uh, the biology argument is a dangerous one because it might prevent us from making changes to our classrooms, our departments, our um, companies, our home environments, our country that um, that could go a very long way into um, getting uh, girls and women into these fields, uh, fields that I think would be very good for them. Yeah, and you, you, you address this a little bit, uh, and you reference stereotypes about culture. There's a a framework that I found helpful in your 2015 paper, uh, you talk about stereotypes about culture and stereotypes about ability, and both of those contributing to girls' participation in computer science and engineering. 
Uh, and then within culture, you talk about the, or you break that up and you say uh, culture about the people, about the work, about the values. Can you just discuss um, those a bit and what goes into each of those three buckets? Yeah, um, so we've done a lot of work to focus um, focus specifically on stereotypes about computer scientists, although I think it applies also to fields like engineering and, phys and physics, for example, um, and maybe even more broad than that to philosophy and fields outside of STEM. But, um, but students have um, stereotypes about what it means to be a computer scientist, and they have images in their head of what a computer scientist looks like and who the people are in these fields, and their images correspond very closely to the images that circulate in the media. So this um, if you're familiar with shows like Big Bang Theory or um, Silicon Valley or movies like Real Genius, um, these uh, kind of cultural um, images of computer scientists and engineers and physicists as being um, mostly men, usually white, sometimes Asian, usually very like um, you could say nerdy or geeky in the sense that they, you know, uh, play video games and they drinks, energy drinks, and they like science fiction, and um, they program all the time, and they've been programming since they were little kids, and it's a, it's a very um, powerful cultural image, and, and one that really, um, I think, crystallized in this country in the, in the 80s, actually, around the time that the proportion of women started decreasing with um, people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and stories about them with their startups and in their garages and things like that. Um, so, the, you know, those kinds of images, um, uh, include not only what the people look like, but also um, what what the work entails, working, you know, programming for programming sake, not um, just being um, kind of obsessive and uh, very hyper-focused and not, you know, having other interests, for example, um, maybe not caring about relationships so much, but caring about um, the work itself and maybe not even caring about whether the work is used for something positive in the world, but just you know, the, what is programming and how can you create a beautiful program? Um, and, you know, saying all this, it's important to note that these are stereotypes. So these are students' um, perceptions of what computer scientists are like and what they value and what the work is like. But um, that's not the reality of computer science. Of course, you can find examples of people like this in computer science, just like you could find examples of people like this in my field in psychology. Um, but, um, you know, computer science, science is very diverse. There's a lot of different types of people in it. There are people who care very much about, um, uh, you know, proving things for other people and, um, and people who don't, you know, who have families and um, don't have sing a single-minded focus on computer science. But the issue is that um, this is not, this, this other image, this more accurate image, this more diverse and varied image of computer science is not getting through to our students. And, um, and because of that, we, uh, we are missing out on a lot of students who could otherwise be very interested in this field, but don't see themselves in it. Uh, so one question that I didn't ask, uh, but I think is important to address is uh, why computer science? So why is it uh, something you're interested in researching? Um, well, this is actually an interesting story. Um, well, when I was a graduate student, I, um, I was in getting my PhD in, in Silicon Valley, basically. I was at Stanford and um, I had come to graduate school after working um, on the East Coast in business. And um, I had actually taken some programming classes when I was uh, doing my, my uh, little stint in business and had actually taken a programming class in college in computer science. But um, I never thought about computer science as like a possible path. And actually, I didn't even take a mandatory computer science school in the 1990s. Um, and did well in all the computer science classes I took, but never, never put it on the table, never considered it as something that I wanted to do. Anyway, so then I get to graduate school. I'm a social psychology PhD program. First summer after I, you know, finish my first year, I decide that um, I want to see what it's like to work in Silicon Valley. So I just worked in business on the East Coast and apply for user research jobs, which is a path that a lot of psychologists end up, end up going into. So I applied to several tech companies and I went and I interviewed at a few companies and uh, the first company that they had, um, I remember, you know, they walked me through their company and took me to the room where I was interviewing. And I remember passing 
um, the names of their conference rooms and they were named after like Star Trek items. And um, there was a bunch of cubicles. It was a very drab kind of office environment. And, um, and I also didn't see um, uh, any women in the whole office. Um, I was, I was uh, looking around to just see what the, what the vibe was there. And, um, and the interview actually went really well. I would have been working on cell phones in the early 2000s and they were gonna pay me a lot more money than my graduate stipend. So, um, you know, there's every reason to take that job. But I remember leaving that interview thinking, I just don't think I would fit here. I don't think I'd have a very good summer. Um, I don't think I could really relate to these to these people who work here. Um, and then I went to my um, second interview, and I remember um, walking into the lobby. And this interview was at Adobe, um, which is a graphic design company, and and their office building was amazing. Um, I walked in; it was colorful, bright. Um, there was like a gym and a cafeteria, and I actually remember sitting in the lobby thinking. I think I could work here. I think this would be a place that I would have a really good summer before I even met anybody. Um, and in both cases, uh, the person I interviewed with was a man. I would have had a, a male boss in both cases. Um, I actually, at Adobe, I was actually less interested in, in the things that I would have been working on there. And I had to have a further commute and they were going to pay me less money. Although I didn't negotiate that because I learned <laughs> that I should negotiate my salary if you're getting, if you're not getting uh, the same amount at two places. Um, but I ended up taking the Adobe job and I worked at Adobe that summer and actually um, for actually several years after that. And then, um, you know, when I came back to campus after that interview, I remember thinking, wow, I just made a really important decision uh, about, you know, potentially a life changing decision about like a career based on the vibe I got from the environments that uh, existed in these two places. And and I remember thinking I should I should probably study this um, because I was very interested in stereotypes and in disparities, and um, so I came back to campus and uh, found a couple people to to um, collaborate with, and we actually started setting up classrooms at Stanford, um, decorating them in different ways, and finding out what happens. So I think that is a great segue into the next uh, topic that I wanted to talk about, stereotype threat. Uh, I think it's perfect encapsulation of, uh, of that concept. So why is stereotype threat a relevant uh, concept to understand uh, when thinking about demographic misrepresentation in, uh, in STEM and in computer science? Uh, I'm, so I'm going to get technical on you here, like social psychology technical. Um, so uh, let me define stereotype threat first, and then I will tell you how I think about it and how I think about this work in relation to it. So uh, stereotype threat is the fear of confirming a negative stereotype about your group. So, um, for example, you know, there's negative stereotypes about women, you know, being less good at math than men. And when you go into a testing situation and you're a woman and you know that there's a stereotype out there, even if you don't believe it, you um, you might be worried that other people will believe it. And so um, as a result, you might underperform because the, the worry that, that you might confirm that stereotype is going to um, interfere with the um, energy that you should be putting toward the test, the concentration that you should be putting toward the test and the focus. Um, so that's a technical definition of stereotype threat. And um, the person who developed the concept, Claude Steele, is actually one of the authors on this paper that I, that I was just um, mentioning, uh, talking about with the with the decorating the rooms in different ways. Um, and so one of the things we had to do was think about, is this stereotype threat or is this not stereotype threat? And what we, what we ended up figuring out is that, um, and the way that Claude Steele, I think, thinks about it now is um, stereotype threat is one of many, what you could call social identity threats. So different ways in which that your identities are implicated in a situation. And um, one could be that there's a negative stereotype about your group. In this case, in the case of these like Star Trek posters and video games and things like that, um, it's there is probably some aspect of stereotype threat where um, when women walk into those environments, they feel that they're going to be judged negatively, that that other people think that they're not going to be good programmers. And we did test for that. And there is some element of that. But that's actually not the overwhelming feeling that's driving women away um, from wanting to uh, be in places where these stereotypes are activated. Um, so, and I can, um, you know, you could think about my interview experience. I went into that interview. I didn't say, 
I don't think I can't do this. Uh, when I walked into that first building, I didn't, I didn't say like, I don't think I'm going to, um, do a bad job. I, what I ended up saying is I don't think I belong here. I don't think I fit with these people. And, um, that's a different kind of threat. That's the threat of, of, an, of not belonging or not feeling like you fit. And that I think is going on, um, in addition to stereotype threat, in addition to feeling that other people might think you can't do it. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of a technical definition, but these social identity threats are extremely important because um, they are shown to shape people's choices and their decisions in your daily lives all the time. So um, one of the, th- you know, and um, I guess I'll say one more thing about it uh, before, you know, you can ask me the next question if you want me to clarify anything, but um, you know, the, the, another example of identity threat that we've studied is it's not only uh, about your feelings of belonging, but it's also your feelings of what will other people think about you if you enter this space. So we have another type of threat that we call identity expression threat that we've shown that uh, women report that um, that they worry that if they take on an identity like a computer science identity, that they will be judged negatively. They will be judged as um, less social, for example, or um, you know, the more um, male oriented uh, so that they would have to take on some of these characteristics themselves. And, um, and that, that itself is another form of threat. So there's many, many different types of identity threats. And the ones that I've studied most prominently relate to these feelings of not, not fitting in or not belonging. Yeah. And you, you, in that 2015 paper, you described six ways that girls are typically constrained um, when it comes to uh, becoming attracted to computer science as a potential profession. One is being steered away by parents, teachers, others who think that CS and STEM is for boys. The second reason that underrepresentation can perpetuate further underrepresentation, uh, that girls systematically underestimate their abilities, that girls anticipate more work family conflicts. Uh, the fifth reason is discrimination. And the sixth reason is that women who enter traditionally masculine domains can be socially and professionally penalized for exhibiting competence and leadership qualities. Uh, so you've uh, alluded to a number of those and I appreciate the uh, you know, the, the idea of stereotype just being one component of it, obviously an important component, but there are other other issues that, that get in the way. I'm curious if there are any of those six that you feel like are important to, to highlight for, uh, for the audience. Um, you know, actually what I would say is since writing that paper, I've actually come to think of it maybe even more broadly. So I think I just broadened out from stereotype threat to social identity threat. And I would, I would say now I think about it as even broader than stereotypes. Like this, um, this problem of gender disparities in fields like computer science, engineering, and and physics um, is not just about stereotypes, it's really about the culture and stereotypes is one aspect of that culture, but you can have other aspects of culture that that aren't even related to stereotypes. Like what I was saying before about like this um, ideology that um, we should all be doing what we're very passionate about, the follow your passions ideology. Um, this, this like very American idea that we need to figure out, like dig down deep, find out what our interests are and then do that thing, you know, and we're constantly asking kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, um, and the thing is, the reason that's a problem is because those answers are shaped so much by, by gendered expectations that, you know, from the time that you're like four years old, you are hearing different girls and boys give different answers. It's, and they don't even know what they're saying most of the time. They don't know what that, that occupation entails, but they've been, they've been, they've started to already be socialized into their genders. Uh, gender roles by by age four and and so when we start telling people you need to follow your passions and then we don't even let them try everything like they don't even get to try computer science in high school because it's not mandatory um, or they try it and it's not taught well it's taught for uh, students who already have programming ability and uh, or not ability programming experience and um, anyway so there's so many barriers to um, trying to get uh, trying to get women and girls um, to be on equal ground with with boys and men um, when it comes to entering these fields that stereotypes is a, are a huge part of that but there's so many other factors as well it's really just a cultural shift that needs to happen that makes it like normal and standard uh, that girls and women go into these fields that it's not like unusual or breaking the mold in some way or that kind of girl you know or something like that um, it just has to become 
uh, it has to become a, it has to be a major cultural shift starting with, um, well, not starting with, we need to do everything at the same time, in my opinion, but like including uh, the media, the people, you know, the, the, the way the people are depicted, um, the experiences that we're giving our kids um, and uh, the ways we think about making choice in America. There's just so many levels of change that need to happen. And so I want to get into some of those levels of change. Uh, but before doing that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, math, uh, because I think it, um, it builds upon the argument that you were, you were just making. And I'm asking this question because in a lot of schools across the country, kids don't get a whole lot of science instruction in K-8. And we're talking about computer science. We're talking about STEM. Uh, and the focus is typically in K-8 on math. It's on English language arts because that's what kids are tested on. Yet to succeed in many, if not most advanced science courses, you need a strong background in math. And yet for a variety of reasons, beliefs around math efficacy can act as a gatekeeper. You cite some research that shows that as early as second grade, girls already hold some of those stereotypes, those cultural stereotypes associating boys with math. So can you talk a bit about how feelings about math further upstream contribute to gender disparities? disparities? in computer science and other STEM fields downstream. And one of the things that I would love is if maybe you can make a quick distinction between women dropping out of computer science jobs as adults, realizing that maybe the, the, the environments are not right for them versus girls uh, making the choice not to actually pursue careers in CS um, at some point along that PK-12 or maybe even PK-16 curriculum. Um, okay, yeah, that sounds good. I, I might have to split those into two yep. different questions. So if I don't if I don't remember or get to the second question, um, you can ask me again. But um, yeah, the math question is super interesting. Um, so I think there's two views among researchers right now. And I'm, I'm going to probably have a view that's different than the general view. Um, so let me tell you the general view first. And then I would encourage your listeners um, to look into different papers on this and come to their own conclusion. So the, I think the general view is that um, uh, math is, like you said, an important important gatekeeper. That um, that because there are these stereotypes in math, and there are these self-efficacy differences where girls um, rate themselves as less less good at math than boys do. That um, and because math forms such a foundation for computer science, that it ends up it ends up contributing to some of the gender disparities in computer science. And I think there's some good um, correlational evidence for for all those points. Um, so I'm not gonna. I'm not going to completely outright uh, reject that argument, but um, but I, I frame it a little differently. And the reason I frame it a little differently is because uh, if you look at what's going on in math right now, girls and boys are doing uh, equally well on math on math exams, and 45% of the undergraduate degrees in math are going to women. Uh, it's it looks very different in math than it does in computer science, physics, and engineering, where it's less than 20%. So. So math is actually doing something, I, I guess you could say better or differently than computer science, engineering, and physics. And that's a very interesting question. Why, why are disparities lower in math than they, would, than they are in these other fields? And, um, and what I think is going on is that, uh, as you mentioned, you know, maybe we don't teach math all that well, but if you compare how we teach math to how we teach computer science, there's a huge difference. We start teaching kids math at a very young age and they get math all throughout their schooling, maybe until the very end and maybe they don't get it at the very end, but they get it all throughout. A hundred percent of students who graduate high schools, public high schools in the US have taken at least one math class. And that number is, is very different for computer science. Uh, I think it's 25%, it might even be lower. Um, although it might be increasing now because I think schools have, have started um, uh, implementing more computer science curriculum. But um, when I looked at the numbers uh, last, the numbers were much, much lower for the proportion of students who have, uh, graduating students who have taken a computer science class. And we're talking about the difference between zero and one classes in computer science usually. And with math, we're talking about, you know, nine, 10, whatever classes. Um, and uh, and because of that, what's, what ends up happening in math is like, let's say there are all these stereotypes that are telling you you're not good at it, or you believe you're not good at it, or you think math isn't for you, or you think you wouldn't belong in math, but then you just have to take math. You have to do it every single year. And along the way, you start realizing that you're getting A's, which is what's happening with a lot of girls. They're doing quite well in their math classes. 
no worse than the boys and in a lot of cases better. Um, and you, re- you meet a teacher who encourages you and maybe it's not every teacher, but maybe there's one along the way who notices that you can do it and um, gives you some encouragement. In computer science, the picture looks very different. You're not even, you're not even taking a class. And so you just have to rely on your, your stereotypes and your ideas about what it means to be com- a computer scientist to decide whether that field is for you or not. And all those messages are pointing in the direction of no, the field is not for you. So you don't even bother trying. And then if you do try, maybe you try once, maybe you don't get that teacher who encourages you. Um, maybe you get a teacher who, uh, who um, uh, like my high school uh, computer science teacher, who was a very nice person, but would um, make Star Trek jokes in class that I did not understand and um, seemed to just really enjoy teaching the boys who could answer all of his questions before we had even learned the material. Um, and, and I got an A in that class, but I, I never got a signal that that would have been something that I should even consider doing in the future. Um, but maybe if I take computer science every year and I had watched myself continue to get A's in that class, um, in those classes and seen a professor or I mean a teacher who, um, who encouraged me or who, uh, you know, who noticed that I was, I was doing well or whatever, then maybe, then maybe I would have considered it at some point. So, um, so, you know, it's interesting because I think math is definitely not perfect, but I think actually computer science uh, education can probably learn some things from, from math education. That's, uh, that's super interesting. I was actually a, a former math teacher. I taught sixth grade math. Uh, so uh, I, mm. yeah, I, I appreciate that response. I'm wondering too, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that I, you know, I'm wondering um, about that response, whether you think that, uh, in high school, a more technical focus might dissuade uh, some girls from pursuing careers in math as opposed to more of a maybe social justice oriented approach to computer science. Um, because I know a lot, a lot of the times, especially the AP courses, um, primarily focus on the technical components of just learning how to code uh, as opposed to the impact that you can make actually through that work. Yeah, there is some evidence for this. Um, so um, there's a professor named Amanda Diekman and she has looked at uh, different STEM fields and how much they, um, she calls it affording communal goals, how much they afford communal goals. And communal goals, she means goals to work with other people or to, to help people in some way uh, or help society in some way. And um, fields that have lower gender disparities like, um, like medicine are usually fields that you can fulfill these communal goals more easily or students have perceptions that you can fulfill these communal goals more easily, I should say. Um, and fields in which students don't have those perceptions, they think that it's a field where you're not going to really help people um, or work with other people. It's kind of an isolated field. Those fields tend to have lower gender disparities. Um, so there is some support for that. Um, and I know that uh, different, at least at the universities level, different universities have tried, um, you know, changing their assignments from uh, their computer science assignments from uh, being kind of like, I, I don't know, just like random, um, maybe more disconnected from problems in the world to making their assignments actually connected to problems in the world. And I, I've heard that they've had some success with that, not only encouraging uh, girls and women, but encouraging people of all genders who care about improving society, which I feel like is a lot of young people nowadays. Um, and so it's, it's a, I think it's a good strategy to, to, to sh- show how um, fields can be used for good, especially in the face of um, all this information we're getting about how fields like computer science can also be used for not good. Um, I think you know that could also be part of what's going on here related to this question is that you know it's kind of a women and girls walking or voting with their feet kind of thing. Um, maybe not wanting to be part of a of an industry that um, that create that fuel some of these massive um, inequalities in society. Yeah, yeah no doubt. So, uh, uh, you know, we framed the problem. I do want to explore why you think it's a problem. And this is a question that I've been thinking a lot about as I write my dissertation, as I talk with my dissertation chair, we have looked through the statistics I've said it's uh, I sort of framed the problem as you you know have discussed it. Um, the statistics show unequivocally that there are significant racial and gender disparities in computer science and other STEM fields. CS is 
dominated by white, uh, primarily by white men. Only 20% of the workforce is women. Uh, Latin and black populations each account for less than 5% of the computer science workforce. And so uh, again, I need to show why this is a problem. So why is it problematic that these professions are male dominated and who is it a problem for? And I say this, you know, it seems like an obvious problem, but why isn't it okay that, uh, you know, it's just men who are creating the, the technologies that we're using on a daily basis. Why is it that they are maybe not capable of having the interests of all, uh, all populations? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. Um, there's several reasons it's a problem. Uh, the first reason is the one that you just um, mentioned there, which is that when you have a narrow uh, group responsible for creating society's infrastructure and um, solutions, uh, it's, it's very, very hard not to create biased systems. And what my favorite example of this is um, actually air, from airbags from the 1970s and 80s when airbags were first um, created and engineered and put into cars. Um, they were made by an all-male design team and they, uh, they ended up injuring and, and killing some women and children because they were made for like a, a default male body type um, and they just made them too big. And um, they didn't think about it. And you know, and if they had had like at least one woman on that on that team, maybe it would have reminded the team that they need to be designing for a broader population. And there's so many examples like this. Um, there's examples from medicine about you know what do heart attacks look like, and 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 using um, heart attacks, what heart attacks look like in men to to um, to generalize, and then it doesn't generalize, and then women's heart heart attacks get underdiagnosed and um, and voice recognition systems that don't pick up women's voices. And then, you know, there's a whole new emerging um, awareness of algorithm bias and how when algorithms are trained on databases that are exclusive themselves or biased in some way themselves, then they end up magnifying these disparities. Um, so, uh, yeah, so these are the problems that are created by a society that has put so much power in the hands of um, a very narrow, uh, very narrow group of people. So that's one, that's one major, major issue. Um, a second reason why it's really important to diversify these fields is because computer science, um, especially, but also, you know, other male dominated fields are the most lucrative high status fields in our society right now. Um, they, they pay very well. They, um, like just mentioned, they have a lot of power in society and, and um, if we want to be serious about closing the gender gap in pay, then, then we have to, we have to either um, break down, break that down, which I'm not opposed to, uh, so that we pay other people. Um, uh, you know, we value their work just as much as we value the work of computer scientists and engineers. Um, uh, and or we need to get um, women and more people of color into the um, professions that are that are paid the highest, which is like these um, computer science and engineering professions. So. Um, so yeah, and then the third reason is that um, we are, we just need more people in these fields. Um, and, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a robust immigration system, um, but we could also be training more people in the US to, uh, to be doing these, this work. And, um, and one way to be training more people is to make these fields more welcoming to a broader population. So uh, you just referenced a couple of things that we can do. I, I want to get into to that sort of like the, the solution piece. And originally I had framed the question as how do you begin to challenge these computer science stereotypes uh, based on, you know, the conversation so far. Uh, I think, you know, we should uh, expand that question a bit just to how do you begin to broaden the computer science pipeline. And I want to think about it. There, there are a few avenues. Um, there's K-12 there's higher ed, there are parents, there are tech companies. Um, one uh, possible solution that I had uh, uh, wanted to chat about that you referenced a little bit is potentially making computer science mandatory, whether that's in high school or whether it is in, um, you know, in, in K-8. K uh, you know, there, there does seem to be um, just a, a workforce problem is the, the supply of teachers capable of teaching computer science um, is, is incredibly low. I know when I started 
uh, doing research into this problem. I think in 2016, there were 32 teachers in the entire country that had graduated with a certification to mm. teach computer science. So the skills just aren't uh, aren't out there. Um, but uh, maybe we can break it down uh, along those four levels, K-12, higher ed, parents, tech companies. How do you begin to, to broaden the, the CS pipeline? Where do, you, where do you feel like the leverage points are? Uh, well, I think there's, there's many places. The way I like to think about it is, um, you know, hopefully your listeners and, and other people, you know, think about their own, their own spaces. Like what, what can we do in um, my classroom or what can we do in uh, my uh, company? And, um, and there are examples of companies and classrooms and departments that have, have done it, have made changes uh, in all different types of, of um, places or aspects of that environment and, and made these changes. So um, I guess this is kind of like a local answer. And I can, I can also maybe later talk about the kind of bigger answer, like the mandatory computer science, is that the right way to go? But I'll start with this local, this local um, way of thinking about it. Uh, so like, let's say you're a computer science department and you are like, okay, I wanna make some changes. What do you do? Uh, I think a lot of times people think, okay, well, I'll, all I need to do is, um, is start a, a summer program. If I could just start a summer program, then you know, we will make some drastic changes into um, you know, maybe partner with some high schools and, and get some um, high school girls in the summer program. We'll start to make, and those things are valuable, but, um, but that's not enough. That's not, that's not gonna uh, drastically change your, your proportions in a short amount of time. So what do you have to do to, to have more um, uh, thorough change? I would say, look at a place like Harvey Mudd. So Harvey Mudd is a really good example. Um, Harvey Mudd Computer Science, they uh, only 10% of their degrees in the early 2000s went to women. And, um, and it, within a decade, they are now graduating upwards of 50%, 55%. And how do they do it? Well, they, they thought about all the places in their culture that were unwelcoming to women or signaled to women that they wouldn't, they wouldn't belong there. And um, one of the main places that they, the, they realized they were doing this was in their intro class. Um, so they thought about the experience of coming into their intro class and um, their intro CS class and realizing that some students had no prior programming experience because of not taking um, computer science in high school or, or any other, through any other experience. And other students had a, you know, a great deal of prior programming experience, but they were all thrown into the same class. And what ended up happening is that the students who had a lot of prior programming experience um, did what the students in my high school class did, which is they answered all the questions, they asked questions that were really hard, they would finish their exams really fast, and they would generally just intimidate the students who had less prior programming experience. And the reason this is a problem from a gender perspective is because the um, studies have shown that uh, boys are more likely to come in with prior programming experience than girls, and partly because there, um, there isn't mandatory computer science, and so boys are more likely to opt into the computer science classes and more likely to get put in computer science extracurricular activities, more likely to just get it um, you know, at home. And so that um, intro class is a very intimidating environment for, for many women and, and many men who hadn't had programming experience, people of all genders who hadn't had programming experience. Um, and so they, they realized that that was sending a strong signal that, um, of not belonging, of not being welcome, that the people that we value in this department are the people who come in already knowing everything. And so um, they split that class into two and they created a much more, um, like a, a friendlier, more welcoming environment for students without prior programming experience. And they did it in a way that didn't value those two classes differently. One class was called the black class. That was the class with more programming experience. And then the class without the prior programming experience was called the gold class. So they didn't, they didn't try to call it advanced and less advanced. They didn't give you a test to decide which class you went into because that would um, you know, probably be interpreted as, by students as who's smart and who's not smart or who's good and who's not good. Um, they, they let you self-select and, um, and they also didn't, they also prevented students in the, um, in the class with more experience from getting further along and maintaining their advantage. They taught them at a way, at a pace, at different paces so that they would end up in the same place at the end. And they used um, additional um, things like guest lectures and things like that for the students who had come in with the experience so that 
uh, they didn't get further along in the curriculum than the other than the other students. So um, that's just one example, but it made a, it made a really big difference. They also taught the um, instructors how to deal with students who are very intimidating in the classroom by um, by saying, you know, I love how passionate you are about this subject, but um, the other students are feeling intimidated. Can we can we answer your questions every week in my office hours instead of having them have these kind of one on one conversations in class that were, um, you know, signaling to the other students that they, they couldn't cut it in computer science. Um, Okay, so that's kind of my local. So there's things that everybody can do in their local spaces to think about um, how you can create environments that feel equally welcoming to student to all kinds of students. Devil's advocate, isn't that just dumbing down the curriculum and preventing some of these uh, folks who maybe have um, uh, some more advanced knowledge of these concepts, uh, slowing them down, uh, you know, pumping the brakes rather than giving them the opportunity to, uh, you know, maybe learn uh, you know, learn more than uh, if they, um, you know, if they weren't in uh, these sort of separate tracks? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, there was a third um, track as well, which was the, you don't even need this class track, you can just skip ahead. And I think that's also okay. That's, that's kind of answering the like, we don't want to slow students down, um, you know, kind of, kind of thing, like, um, fine, then just don't be in this class at all. Like, that's another solution. Um, in terms of those other students, could they, I mean, uh, I don't think what they were doing was necessarily um, not letting them learn. You know, they weren't like prevent, they were learning other things. They were learning things that weren't gonna um, uh, make them, uh, they, weren't, they weren't digging into the next class's topics, you know, so that they didn't enter that class with already having seen all those topics, but they were letting them learn other things that could also be very important and relevant to, um, and I'm sure were to their curriculum, but weren't going to give them some kind of like, um, you could call it maybe an unfair advantage because they started digging into the next, the next uh, classes topic. So I don't know, I see that as a really good way to think about it. Like, um, there's all kinds of things you can teach students. And maybe the maybe you don't want to teach them something that gives them a leg up in a class that all the students will be learning that thing anyway. I mean, in that way, you'd be slowing them down because they'd get to the second class and they would stop learning because they've already learned that thing. So instead, instead of duplicating their learning, give them access to something that they wouldn't have access to in the later classes. Yeah, and as, a, as an educator in that situation, instead of thinking about sort of narrowing the curriculum, you can think about broadening it. Uh, and I, I only ask because I think this is a, a common critique that comes up in situations like this, um, who people are skeptical yeah. of, uh, you know, some of these approaches, just saying that, uh, you know, it's sort of a, I don't know, a critical race theory approach to dumbing things down and not giving everybody um, the, the opportunities they need, but rather sort of teaching to the middle or teaching to, you know, the, the lower ends. Um, so I, I just wanted to get your response on mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think in the previous class, when everyone was together, they were teaching to a very small yeah. minority of students yeah. um, who didn't even need to be in the class, you know, and that's not good teaching. Um, so yeah, so I think I think that's right. And I think what they did by splitting the class and also allowing students to skip it is actually more tailored, more tailored um, uh, options. Yeah, and there's some interesting research. I can't remember where I, I read this, but um, I think the research comes out of the business community that uh, I'm not sure if it was uh, if it was um, a law firm or an investment bank that uh, had a predominantly male population and culturally um, uh, the the people that worked there felt uh, you know more comfortable in that environment versus a competing firm that uh, was more diverse in its demographic makeup. And uh, mm -hmm. they suffered though, um, the, the more homogenous group um, in uh, overall economic output that um, they may have felt a little bit more comfortable, at least the men, than um, in the more diverse mm -hmm. environment, uh, but the uh, more diverse environment perform, uh, performed uh, much better. And I think you referenced mm -hmm. that in, uh, in, in your work when you talk about Harvey Mudd, is that Harvey Mudd is one of the top uh, computer science uh, undergraduate programs in the entire country. Mm -hmm, that's right. And their, their rankings and their, their donations actually only increased after making these changes. Um, so I think it definitely wasn't one of these like lower the bar type of situations. Yeah. Um, so I interrupted you today though, um, and would love just to talk a little bit about uh, how you envision K-12 um, parents and tech companies. Higher ed is you know a little bit farther downstream, but uh, what can uh, maybe K-12 do mm -hmm. to address some of these issues? And then also what can parents do to, um, you know, to begin to, uh, challenge stereotypes, uh, you know, create identities where uh, girls feel confident in pursuing some of these content areas. 
Yeah. Um, so I'll talk about mandatory computer science because I think that is an important question. And um, so I guess the question is, will mandatory computer science reduce gender disparities? And um, there's, there's some evidence that it might um, for the reasons that I was mentioning earlier that, you know, a lot of uh, girls are foregoing these fields without even trying them. And if you let them try it, then you'll find that there will be some who will be interested who didn't think they would be interested, um, especially because the stereotypes are telling them they shouldn't be interested. Um, and so I think there's, there's some evidence for that, but I think we have to be very careful because if it's not taught well, um, or you know, if, it, if we end up just reinforcing those stereotypes, then it can actually do some harm um, to put mandatory computer science in. And so I guess my message would be, um, you know, it's not a bad thing to think about exposing students to computer science, but if you, if you really wanna make change, you gotta think about the culture. Um, and and um, I think, you know, you could probably get um, more change by creating a culture that's very welcoming than you could by putting in mandatory computer science, but then not thinking about the culture, because I think you could do some, you could do some harm that way. So, um, so what kinds of things can K-12 and parents and teachers do uh, from a culture perspective? Um, there's a lot of things, like there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from, from uh, the example I just gave with Harvey Mudd about trying to make the class a place that's, um, that where people, uh, students feel welcome, regardless of how much programming experience they have, regardless of how fast they answer the questions, um, regardless of how much they speak up in class. Um, uh, so I think, um, you know, noticing who's, um, who's uh, putting in the work and um, who might not seem interested, but um, maybe has, you know, has a potential there. Um, I think sometimes we focus, like I was saying earlier, too much on like interest and in many other places in the world, it doesn't really matter what your kids are interested in. You just do what you're supposed to do. Um, and uh, I think about that actually with my own daughter too. Like when we think about what gifts we're getting our kids, um, it's such a gendered thing, you know, like uh, the gifts that, that daughters get versus the gifts that sons get. And, um, and we give them a lot of choice, I think in this country to write, you know, what what gifts do you want for your birthday or what gifts do you want this for this holiday? And, and then we just buy those things. But again, their ideas of what they think they would like are based in part on being socialized into a certain gender. And, and I mean, I remember, you know, getting my daughter um, a circuits kit, like when she was like six or something, and she was not excited when she opened that thing up, but then she loved it. She ended up playing it, um, you know, very regularly and, but she didn't think she was going to like it. But, you know, if I had listened to her, I definitely wouldn't have gotten, gotten that for her. But, um, but anyway, so I think we can think about some aspects of American culture too, that, you know, sometimes can be motivating, like giving kids a lot of choice, but sometimes can result in uh, some, you know, the computer programming club being like 90% boys or the um, AP computer science class being a majority boys. Um, so anyway, so I think there's a lot of ways that we can think about um, uh, addressing these aspects of our culture that that end up creating gender disparities down the line. And uh, those are just a few examples. I should also mention the media. I think the media has a big role to play. Um, students are getting exposed to what it means to be in these fields, especially if they're not taking classes in them based on a large part of the media. And there's a, a nice little study about uh, what happened when ER, the show ER came on television and ER did a good job actually showing kind of a diversity of doctors and um, it made it, you know, just um, more clear to, and more something they could imagine doing. Um, and it ended up um, increasing the, I think there was a little blip after ER in terms of the number of uh, students who wanted to be doctors. I think the same thing happened after LA Law. There was like a little blip in how many wanted to be lawyers. So these images that they're getting through the media are also extremely important. Yeah, and uh, sorry, I, I resonated a lot with uh, with a lot of what you said there uh, because I've had arguments with my mom about the kinds of gifts that she gives uh, <laughs> yeah. my, my two girls. And I mean, we do it from the day they're born, the pink and blue. And uh, yeah. I think they're, you know, you know, you said we give kids choice, but I think a lot of the times it's a, uh, an illusion of choice that it's not real, that they in a lot of ways mm -hmm. have been programmed to want to, you know, be attracted to a certain kind of toy, certain kind of class, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, so we're coming yeah. up on time. Um, there is one more thing with the last few minutes that I want to 
address thinking about uh, K-12 teachers uh, or even college professors who are working with, uh, with girls, with people of color. And, you know, you have a nuance in your research um, around, you know, the, the example is, you know, not to need to simplify or constrain that CS or the STEM stereotype, but rather to diversify it. Earlier, you were talking about sort of that stereotypical geeky computer scientists, like likes science fiction, like I can check off that box, uh, don't like energy drinks, or I like energy drinks, like I'm not going to check that box off. So it's not just about, um, you know, getting rid of the stereotype, but it's definitely more about diversifying it. And you talk a bit about this too, in your 2019 paper on masculine defaults, you write that there's more variability within gender than there is across gender. Um, same goes for race. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are going to be girls who align with the prototypical computer science personality. Um, and I'm wondering if this is sort of having it both ways, because we're asking teachers to do so much, you know, to challenge stereotypes, but do it more in a delicate way, um, you know, to rather, I think I'm almost thinking about it as like presenting a bunch of different possible possibilities, not just what computer scientists mm -hmm. look like, but what they do, what their purpose is, what the environments they work in are like. I'm not sure if there's a question in there, but I just wanted to put it out there and um, see what you thought. Yeah, this is a super important point. Thank you for bringing this up. Um, it's always so important to say this, that whenever I'm talking about women and men or boys and girls, and of course, you know, I also want to acknowledge that I don't think gender is a binary like this. Um, this is the comparisons that we're making based on the, the data that are out there in terms of the proportion of, you know, people graduating in these degrees um, and the comparisons we make between a uh, group that's high status and a group that maybe is lower status or negatively stereotyped, but gender is, is dynamic and fluid and not fixed. So that's one important, very important caveat. The, um, the other one is really the point that you were making about the variability within the genders, which is uh, greater, as you mentioned, than variability between the genders. What that means is that when I talk about women not feeling like they belong, um, I'm never saying all women. And when I talk about like men, you know, being interested in these fields, I'm never saying all men. Um, and in our studies, um, in the experiments that we've done, uh, you know, where we've like changed the posters on the wall and see how interested the um, uh, college women and men are, or high school uh, girls and boys are in these, um, in these, in being taking a computer science class, for example, we always see a core group of women around 25%. Um, who say that they like those Star Trek posters, that they would rather take a computer science class in an environment that looks like that. And um, similarly, we always see a group of, of men and boys, usually a little bit bigger, maybe about 35, 40% who say, I, I wouldn't like to take a class in that kind of environment. I don't think I would do well there. I, um, I don't feel like I would belong in that classroom. And so this is a message, um, exactly what you're saying, which is that the message is not that we need to like kick all the geeks out or, you know, um, just like go through and like get rid of all the, the video games from everywhere. But it's that this cannot be the only way that students think that you can be a computer scientist, that we have to diversify those images so that they think that they're, that they don't have to fit that image to be a successful computer scientist. And um, I do think it's, it's um, you know, it's not easy to do that, but it's definitely not, um, it's definitely possible. You think about the images that are in textbooks and the images you show just like, you know, having different kinds of examples of different kinds of computer scientists. And, you know, like I mentioned before the show ER, I think um, medicine has done this really well. Like if I told you, um, picture a doctor, you would probably have an image of a doctor in your mind. It might be like a uh, old white male. That's my, actually when someone says picture doctor, I think of my pediatrician from when I was growing up and this is old white guy, very nice man. And, um, and then I, and then if someone said picture a second, like picture another doctor. Okay. Now I would picture someone completely different. I would picture like maybe somewhat celebrity, like some like Grey's Anatomy type doctor probably. Um, or maybe I picture my current doctor who's the woman, you know, so I would start to very easily come up with different images of the doctors. Um, with a computer scientist, if I told someone picture a computer scientist, like someone of my generation would probably like picture Bill Gates um, or Steve Jobs. And then it's like picture a second computer scientist. And you're like, okay, well, there's that Mark Zuckerberg guy <laughs> and there's Elon Musk, you know, and you just, it's just so much harder to think of somebody who doesn't look exactly like this. Like, I mean, it's not only just white men, but it's like white men who wear hoodies, yeah. who dropped out of college. You know, it's like, there's like such a, um, narrow, narrow um, image. Anyway, so 
we just have to do a better job of that. Like we have to not make it so that the number two person you think about is basically like a carbon copy of the number one person you think about and the number three person you think about is a carbon copy of the number two. Um, we have to do a better job of getting uh, different images in the heads of students. Yeah, well, when I when I think about uh, a doctor, uh, I think about my dad, uh, who was an old man, even when I was born, a short, cute old <laughs> man. Um, but yeah, I love yeah. that second doctor. Um, and, you know, the, the data shows, I think there are 500,000 um, computer science openings, and you're not going to fill those by um, trying to tailor computer science to a narrow group of, uh, of individuals. So yeah, mm -hmm. you need to really think think uh, long and hard about how to broaden the pipeline. Um, I know we're up on time. I enjoyed our conversation. Um, I hope you did too. And uh, it was great having you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Um, yeah, great questions. I hope uh, I hope your listeners learned something useful.